So what's the story of human history? I mean, what are the major plots and what are more sort of subplots? Is it about countries, how they grow or shrink or change or where the borders are? Or is it about technology? Is it about the stuff that we make and how that changes life? I would think that the more vital something is, the more it deserves coverage. Like if there was a guy who single-handedly stopped a nuclear reactor from melting down in a city of millions, you'd want to cover that story. On a larger scale, if there's one thread in the tapestry of history that's a load-bearing thread, one thread that if someone were to come along and cut it would lead to the collapse of everything, then it's probably something that you want to pay attention to. It would definitely be worth dedicating an hour-long web show too, so that's exactly what we're going to do tonight. Welcome back, Monday night, to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. Thanks for coming and hanging out. My name is Curtis Childs. I'm with the Swedenborg Foundation, and we're happy to have you. If this is your first time watching the show, I'll try to prepare you for what's about to happen to you. Uh, we are looking through the writings of Emanuel Swedenborg, who, if you haven't heard of him, one of the most fascinating stories never told in history. A uh, scientist who was one of the top uh, minds in Europe began having decades worth of spiritual experiences, cataloged them all meticulously, came back with this message of, of uh, all this interesting stuff. And we're looking at it piece by piece. And today's piece is the spiritual history of the human race. And you can be part of the discussion. Get your questions in. We always do this. There's a live question and answer. Answer-ish. I try my best at the end of the show. So get those in and then you can be part of the discussion. So, let's get to it. We're going to take a journey through the history of the spiritual side of humanity, and if we're going to go on that journey, we're going to need to start with some travel notes. So these are just a couple of things to, to make sure the experience goes as smoothly as possible if we're going to be wading into this stuff. First of all, we're going to be using the word church a lot. And with Swedenborg, church is a complex term that has multiple meanings, as he describes it. So we often use the word church, we're thinking about a building or an organization, you know, and that's what it is. But to Swedenborg, it could mean those things, but more in a more essential way, it means a state of mind and a state of heart. The church is something that you can cultivate inside you. It's something that you can have or not have regardless of what religious organization you belong to. It's a state of mind of, of love and of truth. Uh, so hopefully that makes sense. And just know when we're talking about churches, there's that dimension to it. It's not just external religious organizations. All right, that's note one. Note two is that prepare yourself because we're going to be following a specific path. As when you read any history, you're not, you don't read everything that was happening all over the world all the time. You just got to focus. Okay, Napoleon was doing this then because that's important. We're going to be taking a similar sort of narrow tread at some points here, and I'm going to try to explain exactly why we do that. And the third the the kinds of um, ages or eras that Swedenborg is describing are not totally unique to Swedenborg. I'm thinking of the the poet Ovid. He described the four ages of man, and you can look this up. Uh, we found it on, and a lot of places we found it on mythography.com. Um, the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. He described these, and Swedenborg actually, when he was discussing the thing we'll be talking about tonight, he acknowledged that. He wrote in his book, True Christianity, the ancient philosophers concluded that the world would have four ages. They called the first the Golden Age, the second the Silver Age, the third the Bronze Age, and the fourth, the Iron Age. In the statues seen by Nebuchadnezzar, the churches were represented by these same metals. So something that's cool about Swedenborg is he represents a convergence of tradition. So you have the Ovid, and then you have this the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. It's in the, the Old Testament, if you haven't read it. And actually... He says that the metals and the ages they represent there, it's the same thing popping up in these different areas. You may have noticed our thumbnail for this was that statue from Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and Swedenborg says that is representative of this spiritual history. So we're going to be following the statue through the ages. Okay, so that's enough notes. Let's now take a look at the most ancient church. (laughs) 
And the most ancient church is actually an old school translation of it. Now it's the earliest church or those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, that's that's how I used to know it. So we, we named it that. And we're looking at the initial state of the human race. So this golden age. So let's take a look at a quote from Swedenborg where he describes, and this is something he talks about most ancient church a lot. So this is something that he describes in detail, and I want to go piece by piece. First, let's talk about the kind of revelation that people had back in the day. So he writes in Secrets of Heaven, The earliest church experienced direct revelation through personal contact with spirits and angels, and also through visions and dreams sent by the Lord. These gave them a general ability to recognize what was good and true, and having recognized this, they confirmed the generalities, axioms more or less, by countless insights gained through perception. These insights constituted particular details filling in the broad categories to which they belonged. In this way, daily experience corroborated general principle. Whenever they came across something that did not agree with general principle, they perceived that it was wrong. And whenever they came across something that agreed, they perceived that it was right. Heavenly angels are in this same state. So this is how it was in the beginning. And it's kind of how you'd think it should be. If there really, if there's God and if there's heaven, there are angels, there's this whole other reality. Why do we need to find them through books and, and ritual? Why can't we just talk to them? Why don't we see them in our dreams? Why don't we see them in our regular life? Swedenborg is saying that, at, and he doesn't give any dates. He doesn't say this started in the year, you know, 14,000 BC. He just talks about the earliest time. But he's saying this initial phase of the human race, we had this direct contact, the kind of contact you would think you would have if this stuff is really real. And he said that that was the revelation, rather than now you have modern revelations that are written down. That was what informed people and what formed what you would call their religious body of teaching. But he also mentioned this thing called perception, which is a big part of the ancient church, or the most ancient church, as he describes it. Um, Perception is essentially, you can just see what's true. You look around you, and almost like instinct, uh, you can tell what's true and what's right, what's good. And that So these people back in this golden era would get this direct revelation and then be able to confirm it in everything that they saw. And he goes further into that here. We'll take a look at Secrets of Heaven 920. The people of the earliest church had no other kind of worship than internal worship, the kind of worship in heaven. So he's saying this is how it's done in heaven, and these people used to do it here on this planet. In that church, heaven communicated with humankind in such a way as to form a single unit with it. And I think that's a cool image, the idea that they're so in sync that it's, a, it's one thing. The method of communication was perception, which is discussed frequently above. So because the people of that church were angelic and had depth, they did not care about superficial bodily or worldly things, although they were, of course, aware of them. In the individual objects of the senses, rather, they perceived something divine and heavenly. When they saw a tall mountain, for example, they did not picture a mountain but perceived the idea of height, and the idea of height led them to the idea of heaven and the Lord. And he continues on, This is how it came about that the Lord was said to live on the heights, and he was called the highest one and most exalted, and that worship of him was later held on mountains. It was the same with all other phenomena. When they thought of morning, for instance, they did not think of the early hours of the day, but of the quality of heaven, which is like the morning or dawn in a person's mind. So they called the Lord the morning, the east, and the dawn. Likewise, when they perceived a tree with its fruit and leaves, they ignored these details, seeing in them instead the representation of a human being, love and charity being the fruit and faith, the leaves. As a result, they not only compared members of the church to a tree and to a whole paradise and character traits to the fruit and leaves, but also called them such. So this symbology... This understanding of correspondences was so woven into people's minds that they used it in their common, their everyday speech. This was a part of how they perceived the world. And if you are uh, a longtime fan or watcher of this show, I mean, we started less than a year ago, but if you've watched a few episodes previously, you know we do this segment called correspondences, where we try to look at physical objects and uh, imagine or connect with the spiritual reality they represent. This is where you get that from. Uh, this, this was the way that the, ancient, the most ancient people, as Swedenborg described, saw everything. So, do you guys want to try it? We can get in touch with this ancestral.
animal sort of mindset by looking at these objects the way they looked at them. So let's try it out. You saw in that number, he actually gave three specific examples. There's a mountain, and how that when you see a mountain, the idea of height is this idea of the ascent or that the things of God, that the things of God and of heaven are high. So when you see a mountain, that a mountain is an image of that. And you can, it's, that's not a stretch. I mean, you see a mountain, it, it can be, to use a cliche, it can be breathtaking. I mean, it can be a beautiful thing. I remember once I was visiting uh, National Park and we came around out of this cloud bank and like the Teton Mountains were right there. And it just was like, this is an amazing thing. So it's not too hard to picture this as an idea of God. They said the, that the dawn, when you see the dawn, you experience morning. It's like heaven first coming into a person's mind. And then that a tree with fruit is like a person, that, that you learn things like tree has leaves, that you use that to gather the light, which is gather the truth, and then that comes into actions, which are the fruit. So we have those things in mind. Let's look at the actual things, and if we can connect the two, we'll be participating in a small way in this most ancient church mindset. So here, let's take a look. And if you forgot some of the specifics of what Swedenborg says those mean, that's all right. The practice of looking at it for the spiritual thing it represents is what's important. And you can, if you want to get more deeply into this, crack open Swedenborg's books. It's all through there. I mean, you look at uh, his Secrets of Heaven, he'll talk about this so much. You can get as into that as you want to. It can be fun. You walk around in nature and kind of, oh, maybe this is a symbol of this. Maybe, you know, if if you want to do that, <laughs> you're welcome to. Uh, so that's that that kind of thinking is an aspect of the most ancient church, as Swedenborg describes it. And I was just getting a sense, I was feeling a little worried, like this show hasn't been weird enough yet, so I'm going to try to fix that. Uh, I have a, a fact that even Swedenborg uh, knows is weird. You'll see how he opens this. He's basically saying, I know you're not going to believe me, but I'm going to say it. But what the world does not yet know and may have difficulty believing is that the people of the earliest church breathed internally, and the external breathing was silent. As a result, they also spoke less with words than people afterward did and still do. Instead, like the angels, they spoke in ideas or mental images, which they could communicate by endless changes in facial expression, especially around the lips. This part of the face has countless series of muscle fibers that today cannot work separately, but in those times were independent of each other. And he goes on, using these muscles, they were able to display, signal, and represent their ideas in such a way that what we now would need an hour to express in articulated sounds, that is, words, would have taken them a minute. And they conveyed their message to the grasp and real comprehension of those present much more fully and clearly than words or sentences could ever do. This may seem impossible, and yet it is true. And I think you get a sense of, of Swedenborg, the burden on Swedenborg. He's like, I have seen all these things. I know how this is going to sound. Come on, man. It's really true. Uh, so he's basically saying that in this ancient time, he's not saying there was no language, but that there was a lot more communication through facial expression. And I think you can see this a little bit when you get to know somebody more, you get closer to someone, there is a little more facial expression communication, or you learn to read people better. But there he's saying it was on another level. That it was, right now, facial expressions are part of it, but words do most of it. Uh, he's saying back then, it was more facial expression, and words were in more of a supporting role, and that actually you could communicate more clearly and effectively there. So that's what he says. Though, there, he, I could go on and on. There's more things he says, but we gotta, we got to continue our journey. That's a little bit on where we start. Started. Let's take a look at where we went next. So, following the most ancient church, we get necessarily the ancient church, and this is a new spiritual phase for humanity. 
Um, and the first question I would ask is, why did we stop the previous one? I mean, that seemed like a pretty good deal. You get direct revelation. You can talk to angels. You can see the truth and everything. It's why would you want to leave that? You know, that's a pretty that's a pretty hip deal. Uh, so let's discover that right now. Swedenborg describes the transition uh, also in his book Secrets of Heaven. In the ancient church, the state changed to one of conscience concerning goodness and truth. The difference between conditions in the earliest church and in the ancient church, so we got the most ancient or earliest church and then the ancient church, was the difference between having perception and having conscience. Perception is not conscience. Heavenly angels have perception. Spiritual angels have conscience. The earliest church was heavenly, but the ancient church was spiritual. So that's a mess of terms. Let's try to separate it out. Swedenborg talks about different layers of heaven, you know, and and heaven is a state of mind, so different uh, states of openness of mind, and he's saying that just like the people with the most open minds, the most connected to God, have this perception that they can know the truth, they can see what's good, like I said before, like it's by instinct. Uh, people with only a little bit less open, not only, it's still, a, it's still a really wonderful experience, but a little bit less, they they have what we would sort of call conscience. Swedenborg uses a Latin term, conscientia, which is a term that we don't have a really good analog for now. Um, it means conscience, like Jiminy Cricket, but also encompasses consciousness. It's a little bit broader of a term, but it, it basically means, as he's using it there, that we sort of mull things over and get a sense of what we think is right or wrong. It's not a direct, clear signal like perception. So people started to drift away, and if you read more into the history that Swedenborg describes, you know, negative stuff crept in, you know, war, greed, uh, the kinds of things where people couldn't live in this blissful, open state anymore, so there had to be a shift in the spiritual life of people. And so part of it was this shifting, we we sort of lost our ability to perceive and had to go from conscience instead. So that's one thing. Another part of the transition he describes a little farther on in Secrets of Heaven 609. Again, because humankind's state of being in the ancient church had altered completely from that of the earliest church, the race could no longer be taught or enlightened in the same way as the earliest people had been. The inner pathways were now blocked off, preventing any contact with heaven except that which lay hidden to consciousness. No channel of instruction lay open, but the external one through the senses, as just noted. So, because of people started to act a little more nasty to each other, that shut down this open communication that we had. He said, notice he said that there, there's no more conscious communication. You still, everyone still has communication with heaven, or else we couldn't, Swedenborg says, you couldn't live for a second without this, uh, some kind of deep connection that's going on between us and through heaven to God. However, it's not the same. It's not conscious in the same way. You don't, some people do. I know some people have had all kinds of experiences, but generally we're kind of blocked out from that. We don't have this open communication. And he's saying that 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 channel in us, in the makeup of our spirit, the physiology of our spirit, got blocked off. So now there's only through the senses, as he called. So this would be us looking at things, learning from them, reading, writing, that kind of thing. And as you see now in religious traditions now, there's a lot of that it comes from reading. So I so that's the first fact about it. We're going to return to that thread a little bit more, but I want to talk about the what what uh, groups made that church up. Because with this church, he gets a lot more specific. He says, actually, you'll see in this next number, he lists a bunch of countries that he actually says this thing existed in back in the day. However, an anthropologist, right, his study of human history, could go there and could say, actually, we studied the region, and there were a bunch of different churches in all these different areas. There was no one unifying church, so Swedenborg is wrong. And I would say, you should have read more, because you'll see what I'm talking about right here. Secrets of Heaven 2385, he says, the ancient church stretched through many countries, Assyria, Mesopotamia, Syria, Ethiopia, Arabia, Libya, Egypt, and Philistia, all the way to Tyre and Sidon by way of Canaan on both here in far sides of the Jordan, so sort of a Middle East, Mediterranean area where, you know, there's a lot of religious history. But listen to what he says here. These people had different doctrines and different rituals, but were still a single church because charity was the vital element to them, charity or love to the neighbor. In those days, the Lord's kingdom was on earth as it, in the he- as it is in the heaven, because that is what heaven is like. 
meaning that it can have differences in the outward forms, but inner, in the inner forms, love is what's important. If this were how matters now stood, we would all be ruled by the Lord as a single person, no matter what our theology or what our outward form. We would each say, you are my kin. I see that you worship the Lord and that you are a good person. That would make for a pretty, uh, for a lot easier time on earth than we have now. There's not a lot of that going on, but he was saying there was plenty of difference in religion. You know, there's plenty of different uh, rituals, there's plenty of different types of worship and culture. However, everybody knew, okay, if you're trying to be a good person, you're living the best you can, you know, we're family. We, we can all be one church. So that was what bound the ancient church together. It wasn't that they all had the same things, it's that they all had the same love, right? So we're going to continue, learn one more thing about the ancient church, but for this, we're going to delve into an obscure book of Swedenborg's. It's called De Verbo. That's the Latin term for it. I don't think that's the correct pronunciation, but that's as good, as close as I'm going to get. So before we get in there, let's learn what that book is. So I asked a translator from the New Century Edition, what is De Verbo? First of all, it means, that Latin phrase means concerning the word. And De Verbo is what we refer to um, a drink, uh, which was later in 1763 published in slightly different form as the doctrine concerning the sacred scripture. So to distinguish from the sacred scripture, which is also in Swedenborg's opus, um, they call it distinguish it. It's a short But Swedenborg also used that handle himself because when he wrote that, uh, this it was on loose leaf papers and the last six or so section numbers of it were written later and he titled each of the De Verbo at the top to make sure they got connected to the right stack of loose leaf papers. The content of De Verbo and Sacred Scripture morphed again and became chapter four in True Christianity, the last work that Swedenborg published. I was part of a team in the 90s that translated De Verbo. I was the Latin consultant again, which is what I do for these other works. Um, so Bruce Rogers was the primary translator and I just went and checked all the Latin against the English, made sure it was all there with this team. And that team also did a fun little thing um, because it was this work, this draft work was written in loose leaf. The pages were discovered unbound after Swedenborg died and they were all in a strange order. So it was a fun little puzzle to try to figure out what order these pages meant to be in. So I feel like you just need a little bit of background. Where does this stuff come from? What was the phenomenon of Swedenborg that leads to the phenomenon of us doing this thing here? So uh, in case it got a little stuttery in there for a second, my apologies. Uh, if you didn't get it, she was just saying this was a, a text that he wrote but never quite published, uh, which he later kind of rolled into another text called Sacred Scripture, um, and then that became part of true Christianity later. However, the title, De Verbo, means the word. So this is a, a work about the revelation. So let's uh, take a look at a quote from that now. So this is from the word number 15. Angels of the third heaven have told me that the ancients had a word among them, written like our word. And when he says our word, he's talking about the Bible. Uh, and we'll get to that more later, just just FYI, solely in terms of things that correspond, but which has since been lost. They also said that this word is still preserved among them, and is used by the ancients in that heaven, for whom this was the word when they lived in the world. But because that word was filled with correspondent things that only remotely signified heavenly things, and because as a consequence, many in course of time began to falsify it, therefore, in the Lord's divine providence, it gradually disappeared." And another word was given, written in terms of things whose correspondence were not so remote. This was the word given through the prophets to the children of Israel. So he's saying that the Bible, the Bible is actually version two of this revelation, that in this ancient church, there was something that he's calling the ancient word, which was serving the same purpose and was written in sort of a, a less specific style. He wrote that that was working well for a while, but people started to lose the meaning of it. It started to cause problems. So they came out with this version too, which is now the Old Testament of the Bible. So that's just another unifying factor 
of the ancient churches. They had this text probably in different parts around. I don't know if everybody had all of it or, you know, those specific. Some of them are in Swedenborg, some of them aren't. But that was part of their revelation. Because remember, we were talking about before that the, the internal pathway was closed. You couldn't get this direct revelation anymore, so it had to come through the, through the senses, through sight, you know, through reading. That's why there had to be this revelation through text, which there didn't need to be before. And before we leave the ancient church, I just want to say, we're giving you a summary of what Swedenborg says about it, a pretty condensed summary. If you look at this chart here that we pulled up, uh, this if you look at the stories in the Old Testament, we're getting we're talking about the Bible a lot because Swedenborg actually says that the some of these earliest stories in the Bible actually tell you the story of this spiritual history of the human race. Every character in it means something about these churches. It also has a meaning having to do with parts of our mind, which we'll get into later. They have, the Bible has many simultaneous meaning, meanings, and that we're going to get into that a lot two shows from now. We'll dabble in it now, but I just wanted to show you the complexity. It's not like, oh, there was one ancient church, there was one most ancient church. All these different names symbolizes different phases in it, and there was different subcategories and different iterations of everything. So all I'm trying to say is it's complicated, as history actually is when you're talking about groups of many, many people and how they all lived and changed. So those are all the things I wanted to say about the ancient church. Let's move on now to the familiar churches. So we're moving now into some groups that you guys are going to recognize. This, the, the most ancient church, you know, okay, that's just a general way of living, could have happened everywhere. Ancient church, that's sort of, descri- it's not something I've heard of. These next ones, you've heard of these churches. And I'm going to put a little asterisk up on the screen, and that means contain your objections, because we're going to be moving in a direction where we're focusing on the Abrahamic religions. And you might say, what? We're talking about the spiritual history of the human race. Why are you focusing on just them? What about everything else that was going on in India and in China and all that? And I'm saying, wait till next section. I'm going to try my best to explain the whole thing to you. For now, though, I want to take a look at these churches and Swedenborg's unique take on them. So first church, the next church that he said succeeded the ancient church was what he called the Israelitish church, and that's known to people all around the world from the stories of the Old Testament. You know, this is beginning with uh, the Exodus um, and the children of Israel wandering the wilderness, all these pretty familiar stories. He said that was the next in line of this particular succession of churches that we're looking at. And why we're looking at that, we're going to get to soon. Now, there's all kinds of stories in the Bible about this church. Anybody can go look them up, but Swedenborg had a very unique take on what it all means. And he wrote that the symbols and the rituals of this Israelitish church had a meaning, a very specific meaning that actually has to do with the human mind and everything else. And to give a summary of one, there's one particular example that I thought was really and concrete, and so I wanted to look at the tabernacle. I don't know if you guys are familiar the story in the Old Testament of the, the tabernacle uh, that the, the Israelites had when they were moving around. And the Old Testament goes into incredible detail about exactly how this thing needed to be built, how it needed to be managed, and you wonder why. Why is there so much devoted to it? Well, we are going to take a look at that now. We have the series editor of the New Century Edition, Jonathan Rose, is going to walk us through it, and he is actually at a museum where they have a nice model of it to give you kind of a visual, and he's going to take it from here, so I'll give it to him. It is very interesting what Swedenborg says. I think some people now may look back at the Old Testament and say, this is like Bronze Age religion. This has animal sacrifice in it. It, It's so irrelevant to people today. But the way that Swedenborg explains the symbolism, actually it still has tremendous relevance And that's why uh, we're given this image of the tabernacle and why it takes so much space in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. The picture that we're given is actually a picture of what the human mind looks like when it's functioning optimally. Now that may sound bizarre when I first say that, but you have three basic parts to the tabernacle and all of them are kind of walled off from the general public kind of thing. You have a courtyard, a big courtyard, that has a laver and an altar of animal sacrifice, and that's the outermost layer of it. 
And then you go inside to the actual tent, the, the holy tent of meeting. Uh, it has various different names in scripture. And in there, you have the uh, lampstand with the seven lamps. And you also have a table of showbread where there was always bread. Uh, and then there's an altar of incense that was right in front of this veil. And then behind the veil was the most holy place or the Holy of Holies, where there was the Ark of the Covenant with, uh, which held the Ten Commandments within it and these two angel guardians that are, that are hovering over it and, and protecting it. This is a picture to go in reverse order from what I just said of the soul, the mind, and the body. In other words, the most holy place is like the inmost within human beings. And then the mind is within that tent of meeting. And then on the outside is the outside of your life. And what this is saying, the kind of parable of the tabernacle, is that our lives work optimally when we have some kind of a covenant with God at our deepest level. Uh, it's important to have that relationship with God. Uh, it's a more dangerous situation when people have no core or they, they don't have that center that's devoted to God. So that covenant is a way that we function optimally to have that at the very center of your life and your soul, so to speak. And then in the mind, there are three things that we need. That altar of incense is a picture of the prayer that we have, a kind of a prayerful life. It's like your morning devotion or that sort of most sacred part of your conscious mind is that altar of incense. And then the two other things in there are simply that you have some love in your heart meant by that bread that was always there, uh, some love for the neighbor, some goodwill toward them, a desire to bless them and so on. And, uh, and some light in your mind, the seven candlesticks is some light of truth, some awareness that's going on in your mind. Uh, that's all internal, yeah, that's all within our consciousness. Uh, then on the outside of our lives, uh, where the rubber meets the road, you might say, you have the laver and that altar. And what therefore is that the, the altar is about animal sacrifice. Again, it seems gross to us now. It seems very old fashioned or something, but the meaning of it is still beautiful, which is only these really excellent, non-violent, non-predatory kind of animals were sacrificed there. It was just cattle, uh, sheep, um, lambs and so on. They, they were only the best of the flocks were, and they had to be unblemished animals. And what that's a picture of is the best things that we do for others. The best things that we do in our lives are uh, something that we are supposed to attribute to God. It says in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures that when these animals would be sacrificed, a sweet savor, a sweet aroma would go up to God kind of thing. Uh, that's a picture of the fact that we actually offer these things that we admit that even though we are doing good things in our lives, they don't come from ourselves. Uh, they actually come from God. Uh, so that's a picture of functioning well. And then the laver, which had two rings, uh, one for the priests to wash their hands and the other for them to wash their feet, has to do with repentance, has to do with cleansing your life or changing your behavior. Uh, this can take many different forms in people's lives, but it's a picture of being able to wash sort of what you're doing with your hands and where you're going with your feet kind of thing. So the uh, altar of animal sacrifice is a picture of what you do with the best things in your outer life, which is that you thank God for them. And the labor is a picture of what you do with the worst stuff, which is that you try to go through a purification process using the tools that, that, that we've been given and so on. So this is an amazing picture. And the tabernacle was surrounded by all the tribes, the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So they all oriented their lives around this, this picture. And the fact that it has these three parts and is this kind of hidden picture of the human heart and mind and the outside of our lives makes it very relevant today. We, we are no longer sacrificing animals or going in every day, morning and evening and burning incense or whatever. But these practices, uh, this devotion of mind and heart and your life uh, still is something that makes us healthy, still something that's needed in our culture. 
I want to say thanks to Glen Karen Museum. That's where that thing took place, and they were really cool. They let us come in and film. They like took this cover off the exhibit so we could see it and all that. And Glen Karen is also the only museum I know of that has like a Swedenborg exhibit in it. Uh, and was founded by a guy who was interested in Swedenborg. So take a look at their website here, check them out. Totally worth it. So if you were paying attention to the video, you'll see the amazing level of detail of the correspondence that Swedenborg describes in these rituals. This is what we're talking about. So this this tabernacle is actually a picture of a way to behave, a way that you organ can organize a life that applies across all traditions to all peoples at all times. So it's this thing with this huge amount of relevance that's, that is just written in this strange language. And that Swedenborg's saying that the essence of that Israelitish church was it was doing these rituals that had, that appeared strange, you could appear strange to an outsider on on the surface, but had this deeper symbolism, this deeper meaning. So that's the Israelitish church, or the, the spin on it that Swedenborg provides, and he says that's next in succession, and then following that, uh, you know, as many people note, is the Christian church. And I know, again, remember, it doesn't mean the Christian church was the only church or the best church going on in its time period, but we're following a specific thread, and we're going to get to it next section, why. And as far as what I want to say about the Christian church itself, you, you all know it in its current form, and so I don't need to describe the whole thing. I do want to say Swedenborg had a complex relationship with it. You actually could label him as a Christian reformer. His last book that he ever published was called True Christianity, and it was really sort of a map to where how Christianity could get back to where he felt like it would be good. He had, a, you know, obviously his father was a bishop in the Christian church. He had a lot of connections there, was deeply devoted to the thing, but but had a lot of criticisms about how it was currently being run at, his, at the time of his writing and, and where it had strayed. He actually... Uh, sort of marked the beginning of the fallout or the falling out at the Council of Nicaea, which is some this thing that happened in 325 AD. We won't get into it a lot here, but this is when some major doctrinal issue, issues were were sorted out and and decided on. He said that that didn't necessarily go in a good direction. He called everything before that the Apostolic Church, based on the apostles of Jesus. He said that that was what he thought was a much more living part of the Christian church. He describes a little bit of it in his book, True Christianity 174, um, where he, he talks about the apostolic church. By the apostolic church, I mean not only the church that existed in various places in the time of the apostles, but also the church that existed over the two or three centuries after their time. Eventually, however, people started to tear the door to the house of worship off its hinges and break into the sanctuary like thieves. By the house of worship, I mean Christianity." Because he saw a lot of bad stuff going on in the Christian church in his day. He saw a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of violence, a, a lot of uh, missing love. And so there was this whole undercurrent to a lot of his stuff where he was calling that out and, and asking for change. So I've lined up these four churches. We talked about the spiritual infancy or the golden age of the human race when you could see in your dreams and in waking visions and talk to angels and know everything about what was true and good. And we fell a little bit. People got a little more antagonistic toward each other. You still knew correspondences, but you had to learn through writing and you had this sort of difference of culture, but yet this unifying love underneath. It was still a, a thing of love, and then you had a fall from that, and then out of that we, we got this church of ritual, and this church of meaning in what you did in Acts, and then finally the Christian church. And I want to show you now why are we talking about all this stuff, and what ties it together, and what part of the spiritual history of the human race is this? So if you were watching the beginning of the show, in the opening monologue thing, I said, if there was one thread that was, if it was cut, everything would, would fall apart. 
This is why the particular thread we've been talking about today, the progression of these four churches, this is why it's so essential. So you can see that these four churches were all about the progression of the revelation. We have our statue on one side of the screen, then across from it, the different kinds of revelation. Initially, like I said, you had this direct revelation, this direct connection. Down below that in the ancient church, you had, you know, on the right text, like the ancient word, on the left is uh, some hieroglyphics, because Swedenborg says those were actually based on correspondences. So there was some knowledge of symbolism, but it was getting a little more distant. Then below that, you had the tabernacle, this sort of symbolism ritual that symbolized these deeper things. And as Swedenborg mentions, uh, voices. You know, in the Bible you hear about the, a voice calling out from the burning bush, these kinds of stories. It was instruction through voice, but mostly about what to do, rituals, those kinds of things. And finally, Swedenborg says, in the Christian church, everything goes through the Bible, that it's all about that written revelation, and that's how they get their light. So you have this progression of the revelation, but that doesn't mean that these churches are better, you know, it's not like the the Israelitish or the Christian church were better than the other churches. It doesn't mean that God loved those churches more, but they were performing a specific function. And let's take a look at what that function was. This is in Secrets of Heaven 637. If the Lord's church were completely obliterated from the planet, the human race could never survive. So these, this progression we've been talking about is what Swedenborg calls the Lord's church. Every last person would die. The church resembles the heart as noted earlier. As long as the heart thrives, so can the surrounding organs and limbs. But as soon as the heart dies, everything else dies too. The Lord's church on earth is like the heart. From it, the human race, including people outside the church, receives life. Since no one has the faintest idea why this is so, I wish to explain. And he goes on to explain. The situation of the earth's entire population resembles that of the human body with all its parts, as we noted a couple shows ago when we talked about the form of heaven. In this body, the church plays the role of the heart. If there were no church supplying the heart's place, a church with which the Lord could be united by means of heaven and the world of spirits, a break would occur. And if there were a break between the human race and the Lord, we would be annihilated immediately. For this reason, a church has always existed ever since the first moment of humanity's creation. Even when the church has begun to die out, it has always remained alive in a few people. So, again, this is the, when he says the Lord's church, there's a specific technical function it's performing. It doesn't mean that only in these churches we are talking about are people connecting with God, are people even talking to angels. It's about the revelation and how this revelation is acts like a plug, like a wall plug where God and God through heaven connects with the human race in this vital way. Just like in the body, it's not just the heart and lungs. There's all kinds of other stuff, eyes, brain, hands, everything else that's going on. However, if you don't have the heart and lungs, the whole thing goes. So he's saying that it's based on the function of revelation. And he goes on to explain it a little bit more here in Secrets of Heaven, right near the end of his work, Secrets of Heaven, which is a long one. We're talking about like 15 volumes in the New Translation. They who do not know the nature of the word, so the word he's currently talking about is the Christian Bible, but you know, he's talked about the ancient word and things before that cannot possibly believe that by means of it there is a conjunction of the Lord with the human race, and of heaven with the world, and still less they who despise the word or make no account of it. But let them know that the heavens subsist by means of divine truth, and that without it there would be no heavens, and that the human race subsists by means of heaven. For unless heaven flowed in with us, we would not be able to think at all, thus thus not to will anything rationally. In order, therefore, that heaven may subsist, and the human race by conjunction with it, the word has been provided by the Lord, wherein is divine truth for angels and for people, the word in its spiritual and celestial sense being of such a nature as to contain within it angelic wisdom itself in so surpassing a degree that it is scarcely possible for a person to form any conception of its excellence, although in the letter it appears very simple and unpolished. 
For from this it is evident that heaven is in its wisdom from the word when it is being read by us, and then at the same time we are in conjunction with heaven. To this end has such a word been given to us. From this it follows that if this medium of conjunction were not in the world, conjunction with heaven would perish. And with this conjunction, all the good of the will and all the truth of the understanding in us, and with these that very humanity which consociates people with each other, consequently evil and falsity would be in full possession, whereby one society would perish after another. So, the proposition, if you choose to accept it, is that because of the nature of this particular revelation that moved through these churches, which is now Swedenborg saying in the Bible, the nature of it is that there are multiple layers of meaning that correspond and mesh with each other. Even though you may be a, a student of world religions and you may say, oh yeah, well, you know, the Bible's all right, it, you know, it's got some issues, there are better things out there, or you could just be a student of literature. He says that it seems unpolished, but because, as we we're looking at before, because while it's talking about these characters in Genesis, it's, talk, it's symbolically talking about these churches, it's symbolically talking about what happens in the human heart and mind, it's symbolically talking about God, all all in conjunction with each other and all in harmony with each other because of these layers it connects heaven and earth if we when we're reading it even if we don't comprehend it what is going on in us is opening a connecting channel so he's saying that's the function of the revelation and that the function of these churches was to preserve and use that revelation to do their part in the greater human family to keep this connection going so that's what he's saying. And he's saying that that is how it moves. And you may think, okay, if it's this important, it's too bad that there was all these stages, because each one came after sort of a collapse of the previous stage. You know, you could say that that, too bad that happened, shouldn't things have gone better? But Swedenborg, and we're going to end this part on the arc with this quote, says, in a, in a passage that I sort of find like a little poetic, uh, he describes why this is all part of the plan. This is True Christianity 762. The existence of four successive churches on this planet since the world was created accords with a divine design, which is that there is a new beginning, there is a beginning and an end of one thing before a new beginning arises. This is why every day begins with the morning, progresses through the afternoon to the evening, and comes to an end in the night. And after that, the cycle begins anew. Likewise, every year begins in spring, progresses through summer to fall, and comes to an end in winter. After winter, the cycle begins anew. In order to maintain these cycles, the sun starts out in the east, moves through the south and into the west, and ends up in the north. And from the north, it returns to start the cycle again. The same is true of churches. The first church, which was the earliest church, was like the morning, spring, and the east. The second or early church was like the day, summer, and the south. The third church was like evening, fall, and the west. The fourth is like night, winter, and the north. In the Lord's sight, the church appears as a single individual. Just as we do as individuals, this universal human will go through its own life stages. It goes from childhood to youth and on into adulthood and finally old age. When it dies, it rises again. So to me, that's cool. It's this tight metaphor. It's all that th this period of four and then a new beginning happens everywhere. So it happens on a large scale, happens on a small scale. It happens with each of us individually. It happens with something as short as a day. It can happen with something as long as the cycle of churches for the entire human race. So that's what Swedenborg says, ties it together, and how it all works. We've told you this. We've taken your time. Now let's try to talk about why it matters. So I like to, you know, obviously it's interesting history, and if if you take Swedenborg at his word, it's an essential part of history. Um, but why is it relevant to How does it help us in our lives? You know, to to try to be better people. How does it uplift our minds and our spirits? Um, one thought I had is this sort of multi-denominational approach to religious history. It's often from within specific religious traditions you will get people who kind of say, there's our church and everything else was nothing. 
Everything else was and is nothing. But with the world Swedenborg's describing, all these different churches were part of the true progression, and even the rest of the human race was all part of the progression too, because he talks about it all like one body. This is just one part of it we're focusing on. Just because we have people with different ideas about what's true doesn't mean we're not all participating in the same thing. So in that way, I see sort of a unification in that it's all contributing. It's not just... Some people had it right, everyone else was messing things up, that we're all contributing in different ways, that all these different kinds of spirituality across the globe are all valuable contributing pieces of this whole. So I think that's cool. Also, I want to go back to when we talked about the ancient, the most ancient church in the beginning, the earliest church, when we got to talk with angels we got to get direct input from God. You got to see the truth in everything. You knew everything. Everything was great. To me, it's cool to see that and realize, okay, things are not like that anymore. They were like that. Things are messed up. That's why they're not. Because you kind of want, like, why aren't things like that? If there really is God, if there really is heaven, why don't we have this clear, open communication? So to me, it kind of lifts some of the expectation that things should be like that. Realize we're in the part of this story. It's night. It's just before the dawn. You know, morning. the morning of that church was a long time ago, so there's less pressure to, to try to have things be like that now. We can be moving forward into this light, and again, this is a cycle that takes place individually, so any of us, through our pursuit of spiritual uh, goals, can get into this light. But it, I don't know, something about perspective makes it kind of easier to handle this uh, oftentimes annoying situation that we're in of, of life and the difficulties we have in it. And then finally, as I was just alluding to, this cycle mirrors the individual cycle. That Swedenborg says God has it worked out so that everything is a picture of everything, meaning we on a small scale are a picture of the large scale and the large story. So we can know that in us there are these cycles happening, you know, in a on a small level, you know, that little things in our lives will have this morning, noon, evening, and night, one, one church in us moving to another. We go through these cycles and it's okay. We go down, we get back up to a new level. But then also that this mirrors our journey through this world and then into an afterlife where we do better and better. So that there is a both a day-to-day progression thing and a life progression thing for us mirrored in it. And it kind of makes you feel like, hey, I'm plugged in. I'm living the story that everybody lives and that we're all living together as one big human family. So I feel like that matters and that's cool. Hopefully you guys do too. I feel like this was a heavy or like a confusing one. There was a lot of info. So if anything wasn't clear, get your questions in now. We're going to give them our, our best shot on the other side of this break. All right, cool. This is the fun part uh, where we get to hear what you guys are thinking about and uh, converse based on it. So let's take a look at our first question. This is from uh, YouTube. Is Swedenborg a creationist from Blendre or Blender? Um, and the answer is no. I mean, a creationist, as I understand it, is somebody who thinks that um, the first chapter of Genesis, the creation story in Genesis, is a literal description in time of how the universe came to be, that there were six days. And you can see um, that actually through this discussion now, I'm, I'm sure that question was asked earlier on, you can see that because of the correspondence and the symbolism Swedenborg reports in the Bible, that doesn't come up. He doesn't, so I don't know of any time when Swedenborg remarks on how long, you know, the crea- physical crea- actually creation took. He actually says, don't try to think of it in terms of space and time. Uh, but he certainly doesn't say, that it, everything was made in six days, and that's how it is. Actually, not next week, not the following week, but three weeks from now, we're going to do a whole episode on the creation story and what that means in terms of the human mind. But basically, to give away the whole punchline, uh, it's a story about the growth of the human mind. It's about us waking up as people, and that's actually the beginning of our going from total unconsciousness, the darkness, when we're just self-focused, to this beginning light of... Uh, hey, there are other people, I got to try to be good, all the way through to you have the mindset of heaven. God's love is working through you to, to work with people, and you're just a really nice person to be around. So because he has that symbolism, he doesn't fall at all into this creationist, not creationist kind of debate. He sort of sidesteps the whole thing, which is nice. Um, so no, he's not a creationist. Next, this one is from YouTube, Lee. 
What has Swedenborg to say about Adam and Eve? If Adam and Eve truly existed, would that mean we still have original spiritual DNA of him and her carried through Noah to the present time? Uh, thanks, Lee, for that question. He actually says, and if you go back, you know, you if you want to go back to that chart we we showed uh, earlier in the show, uh, there's actually Adam and Eve are in there as characters. The, you know that most ancient church that we talked about, the first church? That's Adam and Eve. The way Swedenborg wrote uh, the Adam and Eve are a symbol for the first people. It's not the, it's not that the human race, he didn't write that the human race started with two people. He's saying Adam and Eve were the first group of people that existed. And so the Garden of Eden is this state of mind where you're, where everything is really great. Everyone's nice to each other. Things are how you think that they should be. How, uh, you know, as far as having that, this, this spiritual DNA that you're talking about, I know that, you know, the spirit is passed down from person to person. Swedenborg calls it heredity. So, you know, we don't, we're not a different species than those first people. We have some of the similar makeup. Obviously, it's changed a lot during the time, and I don't know, you know, how much of that we have, how different we are now. Um, But there's certainly some connection. But overall, he describes Adam and Eve as a symbol for the initial state of mind in the human race. So thanks for that one. Let's take a look at another. This is also from YouTube. Alyssa, what made the people act so nasty to each other to lose the special communication of the ancient churches? That's a great question, and he mentions it specifically. Hopefully I'm remembering it right, but it was basically uh, a love of power crept in and a reliance on the self. Before there was this idea of God gives everything, God does everything, we're going to be kind, um, but there were people began to crave the possessions of others and decide, hey, I'm going to take that for myself. I want power over other people. The root of evil, as Swedenborg describes it, is a love of power over other people. And that began, I don't know, like, as far as how did that happen? When was, like, the first picnic when someone decided, oh, I want to steal your stuff? I don't know. I don't know how that works. I don't think Swedenborg gives anything nearly that specific. But he says that began to creep in. Somehow people... And yeah, as far as how did that happen, like how did that influence, that, that's like a fascinating subject, and I feel like I don't know anything about it. Um, and I haven't found a ton in Swedenborg about how that first turning happened, but once it began to take hold, that's what shut people's minds up, because once that evil, that the desire for dominion began to creep in, people no longer could live like they live. You have to start to form tribes and alliances and that kind of thing, and it just sort of went downhill from there. So that's my answer to that question. Great question. You guys are are asking very insightful things. So let's take a look at another one. This is from YouTube Zorn 101. What is the definition of church you are using? What is the definition of God you are using? So church, as we were mentioning in the beginning, thanks very much for the question. Church, as we were mentioning in the beginning, um, in this sense, seems to be it's a state of mind, because if you remember when we talked about the ancient church, Swedenborg said they had many different rituals and cult, many different what we would now call churches, but because they all had this same kind of a universal love behind it, it's called one church. So yes, the most ancient church that we talked about doesn't mean you could go back into the historical record and see, oh, everyone was using the same little symbols on their altars. It's, it's a state of mind that existed in the people, and it very much... The as the churches progressed and got more external, they took much more um, organized forms that were that were based in organ based in organizations or based in groups, you know. But it really it all gets down to a state of mind. The more spiritual a church is, the more it is a state of mind. And when Swedenborg talks about the church in us, he says that's what really matters is your your state of mind and your thought. As far as God, um, what's our what's our definition of God? Uh, Swedenborg defines God as uh, lo- God is made of love and wisdom. A God is the creator and sustainer of the universe, is divine love, divine wisdom, the source of all of our life. Swedenborg is what I would call a theist, uh, meaning that in we are human because God is. He said there's not some kind of essence that doesn't have the ability to know us and, and, and um, have intention, that this is a God you could talk to. That, and, and we we discussed the most ancient church, and that's when Swedenborg said you would get direct sort of revelation. So in Swedenborg's word worldview, there is this loving being that is infinite and and obviously something way beyond our ability to picture. However, we can, can God can make Himself relatable, so that we can have relationship and 
some kind of communication and contact with God, and that God that we are actually modeled after. So somehow everything gets its quality and form from God. So there's my, my quick definition, a quick definition of God. So let's take a look at another one. This is from Lupe on YouTube. So is Swedenborg stating a need for us to read the Bible word often, whether we understand it or not, as we benefit from it spiritually? That's a great, great question, and I, I think so. I mean, I think that Swedenborg is advocating that. He seems to, he seems to say that, I mean, obviously you can be okay without reading the Bible. It, you know, there's plenty of people, I mean, now with the, how connected the world is, probably a, a large percentage of the population has heard of the Bible or has access to it. But even in his day, Swedenborg described, you know, seeing in the spiritual world people who had never heard of the Bible or of Christianity, but because they had loved what was good, they they soaked up all kinds of truth in the next life. So you don't you don't have to have it to be okay. However, he does seem to be prescribing it a bit, and for for some interesting reasons that it can um, that it can have an impact even when we aren't understanding it. Um, that also it has this benefit even for heaven, as he was saying it. That that actually when you're reading it from a sincere heart and you don't think you understand, you could actually somehow it can do this connecting thing. There's some there's some kind of mechanism there. Um, Swedenborg did seem to really say that that having taking that into your system is a good thing for you. Um, now, if you're somebody who really doesn't like that text, or you have a negative association with it, or something like that, there are plenty of other ways to get really excellent spiritual stuff. I think you could be okay with that. However, if it's something you're interested in, yeah, I, I think that the way he's describing it, it is like a a good thing to do, and can and can have benefit even when you are reading something and you're saying, "What is this? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, I don't understand this." It can still be something good. So to approach it with sort of this open mind of there's a deeper meaning here, and the meaning has something to do with love. Because even though the external sense of the Bible doesn't always seem very loving, it can actually seem really horrific. The way that Swedenborg describes what it really means, there is this love in it. So. That, those are some of my thoughts on it, um, and you know, you get into Swedenborg pretty much anywhere. Pretty soon, you're going to encounter some kind of quote from the Bible. So obviously, he thought it had an importance, and it's a tricky thing to say because there's some people really like the Bible. Some people have really hard time with it because there's a lot of people who have acted really negatively using the Bible, and also there's a lot of stuff that seems really confusing in the Bible. And Swedenborg acknowledges the negative stuff in the Bible, but says this is symbolic and the inner meaning. Look with the tabernacle, like we saw with Jonathan Rose before, stuff that seems weird to us actually symbolizes or has this correspondence with stuff that's just good and just loving. So that's a great question. Let's take a look at another one. This is from David on YouTube. So will we be entering into a new church similar to the first? Does Swedenborg prophesy on the future of the church or describe today's church? Man, that is the best question you could ask because that's actually what we're going to talk about next episode. So I'm going to leave it. Yes, there is a new church coming that Swedenborg talks about. I don't know. There may be parts of it happening now. We're going to explore that in detail next Monday. So thanks very much for that question. All right, let's take a look at another. This is Blendre on YouTube. So is using words a lesser form of communication? Yeah, man, great question. Because he seems to, it seems to be how he's setting it up, doesn't it? Uh, that that there is a more intimate communication than words. We sort of get a sense of that. People say, like, I just can't put words to it, you know, or words fail me right now. I guess that's kind of an old school thing. People don't really say that anymore. But there is sort of a sense that we kind of have to try to bend language to our will, that there is, if we could communicate through feeling, just here, this is how I feel. A picture is worth a thousand words. It does seem like it. However, for us as we are now, it seems that words are essential, and, and words can do some really beautiful things. Um, you know, poetry, there, there can be times when words are very meaningful. Um, so I would say there are, there are always greater forms of communication, it seems. You can get into these sort of spiritual things. However, for what we are now as people, words can, can do a lot of really great things. And some people obviously are more at home in words than others, and it could be that for some people, words are the highest form of communication. I think, as Swedenborg writes, nobody's heaven is exactly the same. So the, the, the heaven inside, the church inside people is all different and unique. So it could be that there are some people who that's their highest form of communication. But it seems that in general, yeah, there are 
deeper ways to communicate. I can't do them, so I'm using words here today, but there's better things out there. All right, let's take a look. We got two more. Uh, this one is from Lee on YouTube. I read a lot of Alan Watts and Aaron Hevel. Both say that God or the Lord is our own imagination. Most curious. Any thoughts from Swedenborg? Yeah, I would say Swedenborg would flip that and say that almost that we are in the imagination of God, that God is the reality, and that we, Swedenborg says, we are because God is, that everything that seems to be us is God is the matrix in which it all takes place, that God is essential reality, and our ability to perceive and imagine is coming out of God. So he he is almost saying the opposite of that, um, that, that God is the, I, I know a quote of it, God is the absolute, I'm going to have to paraphrase it, God is the absolute reality underlying everything. Actually, I think that is how he says it, that there is this reality of reality, and that's God's. And from that, everything emanates out, being less and less real the farther it is from God. So those are, that's how Swedenborg describes it. And let's take a look at our last one here. This is again from Lee. What if people before Adam and Eve? Um, that's, a very, that's a very interesting question. Um, so as Swedenborg describes it, Adam and Eve are the, the earliest church. So he would sort of be saying this is the first. It's not, they're not two people as we talked about before. However, he does mention this thing he calls the pre-Adamites. If you search that, go to a search of Swedenborg's terms, you'll find this thing, the pre-Adamites. And I don't even know what that would be. Um, he, he describes them as people that were like a little different, but but maybe, you know, from the name of it, predated that whole thing. I would have to look that up more. Um, because I don't want to just make stuff up on that, but I know that there is that term. And I would imagine that there's some kind of progression, because, you know, if you look at the way that, that species are, you know, there's an evolving of intelligence. So there would have to be some kind of spectrum of, of consciousness and awareness. So my answer is, I don't know enough to say everything about that. So that that's a fitting ending because that sort of sums up the essence of my question answering pretty well. You guys have been awesome. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the program. It was great having you here. If you want to help spread the program, make it possible, please consider making a small donation to the Swedenborg Foundation. Uh, the description is in, or open up the description. There's a link there where you can donate. It will be matched five to one through a grant we got. So we really appreciate it. Um, and also it will be tax deductible for you if you're into that kind of thing. So, as I mentioned in response to David's question, next week we are going to be talking about the future, because you have this, so we followed this statue, this from Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? You, If you've read that story, you know that after the statue, there was a stone that came down, hit and expanded and filled the earth. What is that stone? Also, Swedenborg talks about how there's four churches, just like the phases of a human life, that we go from childhood to adolescence to adulthood to old age, then we die and rise again as people's bodies die and their spirit rises. But what is that rising again? We're going to take a look at it next week as we take a peek into the spiritual future of the human race.